I'm Carlos Frias. Welcome to this special episode of Sundial on WLRN. We're taking a look back at some of our best conversations, starting with author Patricia Engel. The characters in her new book, The Faraway World, are scattered. They work in factories in New Jersey, where they save for plastic surgery. They run drugs in Miami and try to hold on to their boyfriends. They drive taxis in Cuba and dream of other lives with other women. They clean Catholic churches in Colombia. Wherever they are, Patricia puts them through the ringer. They lose a sister. They're hit by cars. They cheat and are cheated on. Sometimes they even struggle to write. Many of them are contorting themselves to fit into what Patricia called the United States of Diasporica. Ultimately, these characters feel. They confront those feelings. We watch them change. At their best, Patricia's characters feel real enough to make us consider the actual people around us. Patricia's last novel was a New York Times bestseller, Infinite Country. This time, she's given us a collection of short stories she wrote over the course of a decade. You know, one thing that, that I thought about when I was going through the book, and they're varied stories, uh, and they really they touch on so much of parts of the, parts of the world. Mm-hmm. I, I thought about you being born in New Jersey, mm-hmm. and yet you've trained your eyes on the stories of immigrants and the lies of immigrants. And I wonder why this is such an interesting field for you to keep exploring and keep coming back to. Yeah, the only life that I have ever known is one as the daughter of Colombian immigrants. Mm -hmm. And the only life I've ever known has been as a part of a very large immigrant family and connected to other immigrant families that formed our larger community. So that's my world. Mm. And, of course, I've navigated other worlds through the course of my life as well. But I am most inspired by uh, those original impressions. Uh, Immigrants and their families are are my heroes they're my greatest inspirations they are they are the people that most fascinate me and as a daughter of immigrants when I was coming up as a young reader and really just feeling rooted and connected and excited by books I found that there was a huge gap in what was available in um, in American literature you didn't see yourself represented in that No, and it's not like I was looking for myself. I wasn't looking for, you know, you don't read for vanity. You don't read for a direct reflection of yourself. But something, some sort of bridge or through line, um, I really felt that there were gaps. Um, And I think those were my first impulses to write was toward those voids that I I sensed. Mm -hmm. I didn't know what I was doing at all. But that continues to be where I begin to address those readers who are coming from communities that are not reflected in contemporary American literature and to uh, and for those people who are who are looking to build friendships with characters from communities that are not like their own. Yeah, it's funny because you talk about heroes and like, yeah, my my grandmother, who I call my grandmother, my abuelita, was really the next door neighbor who helped raise me, and mm-hmm. she was a writer in Cuba. Mm-hmm. And my parents, you know, like they were these folks who like had their own business, you know, their little jewelry store and what have you, and and they were my heroes. And I'm wondering, like, are there specific folks? Will you talk about some of your heroes? Well, I have no greater hero than my own parents. 
but my parents are very typical in that they, like, you know, your family, you just mentioned the people you know, they launch themselves into the great unknown mm. by virtue of leaving their homeland, not knowing for how long, if, they were, if it was just going to be temporal and they were going to return home ever. But either way, uh, whether they were fueled by dreams or ambition or desire or simply curiosity, that is a massive, massive risk. What a leap of faith. You know, that's a risk that I don't even know if a person like you or a person like me could, could take to At leave all. everything that you've ever known to just start over completely from scratch, an entirely new place where you don't speak the language, where you're not necessarily welcomed and maybe you're rejected by the society already um, in charge there. That's, that's a very tall order. And it's also a very tall emotional order knowing that you are the one responsible for really disrupting your family history. Wow. Your children are going to be different from you, you know, and they are going to lose that connection to the homeland over time. You know, that's something that goes away very um, in subtle ways from one generation to the next. And it begins with the loss of language and tradition and culture, all those things that happen in diaspora, uh, in the condition of immigration. And when you place that burden on the in the the first people who took that step, whether it be your parents or your grandparents or whoever, the disruptor of the family story, well, that's that's a lot. That's a lot for a person to carry. Uh, at the same time, think of all the beautiful things that come out of such a risk. Yeah, uh, sure, it always comes with challenges and difficulties and sorrows and homesickness, but there's so much beauty born out of that that risk-taking as well. And that just uh, is what I'm constantly trying to unpack in, in my writing. I think about my own mother, who at one point when I was interviewing her for my book, uh, she said, if I had known that I was never coming back, I might never have left. And so you, mm-hmm. you, you're talking about these first folks that make these big decisions, mm-hmm. and, and it, it gives you some insight into the world of that vacillating of how they must have gone back and forth. And and you get into that in a lot of the in the characters in your book. They they do vacillate, and they're they're very complex in, in their feelings and their emotions. Yeah, some people have this idea that the the desire to move to immigrate is something that everyone just does, you know, with full force, running towards the door, you know, to get out of wherever they are. No regrets. The place. Yeah, and you never look back, right? right? In fact, I've always found in the communities that I grew up in that it's it's very different. It's full of regret. Yeah. It's full of wondering if you made the right choice. It's full of longing and dreaming for the life you left and wondering if you could ever go back to it, especially if you have left loved ones behind who are still in the same place living that life. And another story that I've tried to explore in the faraway world throughout it is that there are a great many people who have no desire to ever leave their homeland, Right. So then what does that do to relationships, to families, when there are those who leave, when there are those who stay? Anytime that there's been immigration, there's always families mm-hmm. torn apart or pulled apart or living apart. Mm-hmm. And that, that just creates that tension, you know, that just creates a tension. What, do, what is your own parents' immigrant story? Will you share a little bit of that? Yeah, my parents um, met in Flushing, Queens, when they were both living there uh, with their families separately. But my mother had to go back to Colombia, and so she did. But I guess my father had already fallen very much in love, and he proposed to her over the telephone a couple months later. She was in Colombia, and yeah, he was in New York. Yeah, he proposed to her over the phone. Yeah, and then he went. Uh, he went to Bogota and asked for her hand uh, formally. 
Wow. And they were married six months or so later, and then she came uh, back with him, and and they stayed in the United States. Um, for a time, they went to live in Puerto Rico for a few years when my brother was born, and the rest of that time, they were back in the United States. And I remember throughout my child, my mother um, oh, shared with me from time to time that she always thought she would go back. She always thought, you know, we'll do something here, and then we'll go back. Mm-hmm. She left all her family in Bogota. What brought her here? My father. <laughs> oh, oh, right, when she left originally. Yeah, when but she the, w- oh, when the, they first came the first time. time yeah. She came with her mothers and sisters. She was studying. Oh, she was studying. Yeah. She came to school. Uh, and, um, and so um, she, then she told me, when I was old enough to understand, I remember I, was, I must have been 13 or 14, that there came a moment when she realized her life was here now. Mm. And, and, and that was it. And she, she never really looked back beyond that. She realized her life was here. And being older now, looking back, I, I can only imagine how difficult that must have been for her. Yeah. Um, also to have children born and raised in an entirely different culture. Uh, she did an amazing job of, you know, um, teaching us about um, my parents' country and speaking Spanish to us and, um, you know, passing on all the important things. But we grew up very differently. You just simply cannot deny that, right? Yeah. And I think there must have been a lot of loss um, in that as well, knowing that we would not know the streets of her neighborhood the way she did. We would not even experience the intimacy of the weather in the land the way that she did. We would only experience that on vacation. You know, I remember my mother, uh, my mom just passed last year, actually, but I oh, remember. I'm so sorry. Thank you. My, um Every single time that the weather in New Jersey hit 62 degrees and was chilly and overcast, she would step outside and say, it's just like Bogota. Wow. And, you know, I, I would always hear her say this, and I just thought, okay. But uh, as I've gotten older, I realized that visceral connection to the weather, to the climate, and how that just transported her every single time, and she lived with that every single time and it just shows you how we leave a place but we carry it within us no matter where we go what's that old saying like no matter where you go there you are there you are and so it goes with immigration so it goes with the way humans navigate this planet which is really the order of the world it's movement right right and perpetually in motion and that's how we continue as a species Um, but at the same time, we carry so much within us. We carry our points of origin down to the weather, down to the temperature, down to the climate. Forget about all our memories, all the people we've loved, all the places we've spent, our most important moments. All of that lives within us. You know? And there's there's so much of that in your books that you've like infused some of those. You, I can feel some of those memories of your mother and those stories infused in the book. I'm thinking of even like Aguacero, at the end, uh, well, like you said, it's fu- it doesn't matter where you end up in life, like you're always rooted to that place where you're born, like sea turtles and what have you. And, and this idea of, um, without giving too much away, uh, this one character uh, being being held captive and then is free and just enjoying being in the outside and being uh, um, uh, appreciating the outdoors and, and kind of painting that picture of what the part of Colombia that he's in, you know. Uh, it's so moving, and, and to hear you talk about it, really, it brings it into perspective. Thank you. Yeah, that's a story that, that uh, does explore this idea of both um, 
actual physical and emotional captivity, right? The way that there, you have a character here who, who was uh, kidnapped and held captive for a period of time. But there's so much, even after he's freed, that he still carries within him a kind of prison that endures even after he's liberated. So I like to explore in the stories as well, just that kind of borders, but also borderlessness. Um, how we can belong to a place, but also what happens when we don't, when we free ourselves beyond it, when we can really learn who we are, free of things that have tie us to certain fixed identities, down to our citizenship. You know, it's it's not always all good stuff that, that is connected with all that. So who are we as people when we're stripped of all those reminders of who we're supposed to be? Right. And you, you touched on that in, in your novel, just about the, the randomness of committing a crime in a place that's a different place, you know, and uh, the, random, the randomness of how the rules change of where you end up and what have you. Yes, yes. Um, you're, you're obviously not just a great storyteller in print. You're out today telling great stories. Was there a big storyteller in your life? Was there someone who, who you love to hear tell stories? Yeah, I think, I think this is so typical, too, of families who immigrate. Because really, sometimes the only thing that we take with us when we leave one country and go to another is our stories, right? Mm -hmm. And it becomes so important to pass those on from one generation to the next. So I think storytelling is really how human beings make sense of the life and find meaning and order to all this chaos of life, right? But it becomes more essential when you leave a homeland and come to another because it's, it's your only way to remember. So... Uh, the big storyteller in my family, although everyone was a storyteller in my family, but the big one was my grandmother, my abuela, just like yours, who was an actual writer. She had nine children, and somehow in her free time, she wrote up a storm. Free time. <laughs> 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 and uh, so she was my first example of a writer. But I have to say, stories were all around, you know, and stories are not always this formalized thing, like a beginning, middle, and end with lessons and morals and plots and whatever. Sometimes they're just cheese, man. <laughs> right, exactly. And, of course, that's where you learn about characters and what makes people interesting, what makes people tick, what motivates them, and their imperfections and flaws and errors and all the mistakes they get in, which makes life very interesting. So I, I just heard stories all around me all the time, and I'm so fascinated by people. And fundamentally, the faraway world is made up of 10 short stories that are about people. They're people stories, right? It's people making mistakes, people driven by desire, um, carrying some heartache here, carrying hope in the other pocket, and just living. That was author Patricia Engel. She's a creative writing professor at the University of Miami, and her new book, The Faraway World, is out now. You can listen to our full conversation with Patricia on our website at wlrn.org or search for WLRN Sundial on your podcast app. Still to come, Cuban-American playwright Nilo Cruz joins us. We talk about his Pulitzer Prize-winning play, Anna in the Tropics. It's set in a cigar factory in Tampa during the Great Depression and was just recently met with unexpected pushback for its steamy scenes. Welcome back to a special episode of Sundial. I'm Carlos Frias. The playwright Nilo Cruz first found fame here in South Florida. It wasn't on Broadway, wasn't in New York City, but just off Lejeune Road in Coral Gables, where the world first discovered the play that would make Nilo famous, Anna in the Tropics. The play is set in a Cuban-American cigar factory in Tampa during the Great Depression. There, a lector, 
reads novels to workers while they hand-roll cigars. A new lector comes into town to read the Russian novel Anna Karenina, and the lives of the factory workers begin to mirror the book's love triangle. The play would go on to win Nilo the Pulitzer Prize for Drama in 2003. Nilo eventually staged the play in New York with an all-Latino cast. It catapulted Nilo's career. He continues to create dramas that inform Latino life and culture. He was in Miami to direct the 20th anniversary of Anna in the Tropics. This time, it was met with some unexpected resistance. The play had been staged for high school students in the past, but this time, the Miami-Dade County School Board rejected it for its steamy scenes. The school board eventually relented and allowed high school seniors to see the work created by a man who was once a Miami-Dade public school student just like them. He joined us to talk about the play that launched his career. You know, this play is sexy. It's seductive. It is visceral in ways. But did you ever encounter any kind of controversy like this over it? Only when the play was going to be done in Iran. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're in fine company then. <laughs> oh, man. Wow. Yeah, it was censored in, in Iran. And um, uh, they, were gonna, they did a, a reading of the piece, and it was going to be staged there. But, you know, I guess they have uh, committees there that, uh, that uh, judge the work that should be done on stage, and they didn't think it was appropriate for and- for the audience there, right, and then and then you have that that issue here. What I mean, it's been staged here before. Oh yeah, it for has. students. Oh yeah, we I staged it at Coconut Grove Playhouse, and we had st- students come to see the performance. We kind of toned down some of the scenes when when you know the more graphic scenes, sexually sure. graphic scenes, uh, when the students came. And we should say the quote unquote sexually graphic scenes, <laughs> nothing by the standards of what this, these same kids are seeing on TikTok or completely or whatever, right? Yeah, and I and actually I didn't tone down the the piece with this uh, uh, production here in Miami because the schools were coming. It's just I felt it was better to do it this way and uh, and you know uh, and suggest more than than be graphic, right? And so what did it say to you? Eventually they relented, but what did they, what did you feel when you? heard that they were they had rejected including it in the plays that they would show students well i was very disappointed yeah i mean and 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 to be honest with you i lost a whole week of work i just became very depressed because yeah i mean this is this is where i live you know i grew up in miami and i went to miami senior high that's where and shenandoah and that's where i in shenandoah i discovered shakespeare and shakespeare changed my life wow. you know it's like i i wanted to immerse myself in that world i i through Shakespeare, I wanted to become a writer. And, and of course, there were other influential uh, writers as well, like Emily Dickinson, and of course, from uh, Cuba, Jose Martí. But, but imagine if I hadn't had that experience. So, so, so when this, the news came to me that they, had, they were censoring the piece, uh, it, it just broke my heart because, I mean, I yeah. just thought of... Uh, if if Shakespeare this did this to me and other plays have done have inspired me as well, I hope that my play does that for the new generation. Absolutely, and that's I imagine that that was the hardest part. But then eventually, they came around. Yeah, yeah. We had a meeting with the, with the school board, and uh, and you know, and and they eventually said that yeah, decided that they were going to bring the schools to see the play. And you you were g- always going to direct it. 
Always going to direct it. Yeah. I started as a director. Really? Yeah. Because you don't. Because folks, you know that you're directing this play, but you don't. You don't often direct. I don't always direct because in the theater world, they first of all, just because you're a writer doesn't mean that you're a good director. And also dealing with actors, you, know, <laughs> it's, you, you have to play not just a director, you have to be a father, you have to be a counselor, you have to be, and very patient, you know, because they have their own process too, and we must respect their process. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and, and to be honest with you, not all playwrights can direct right. uh, the work. And, I, and I, I totally understand, especially at the beginning when the play is being born, you sort of want to step back a little bit and wear, and wear the playwright's hat instead of wearing the director's hat because you're still exploring the play as a writer. So I, you know, usually a first production of the play is usually directed by someone else. Like, well, for instance, when it was directed, he, when it was produced here in Miami, it was directed by Rafael de Acha, which had the uh, new theater uh, mm -hmm. in Core Gables. And it's so interesting to me. What must it be like when you see your play staged and you've written your actors, you've written the parts of these characters in your mind, and then you see other people fill it with their own humanity? What is that like? Well, I mean, the beautiful thing about theater is that uh, it's... It's a very generous art form, mm. meaning that you want the interpretation of an actor. You want the interpretation of a set designer, of a music designer, uh, of a sound designer as well, because they also bring their own take on the narrative, you know? And um, so, I mean, that's why I think it's one of the most, gener one of the most generous art forms uh, there is because of uh, it brings so many people together to tell a story. And the actors that you have playing here, tell me a little bit about that process of bringing them in because there are some some great, uh, um, there's some great acting in this play. We saw it over the weekend for the first time, and which I think is interesting because even though this play has been around for 20 years, there's people there are people discovering it every day, like my one of my young producers in the other room who's, who came with us to see it. Y tenía mucha pena to come say hi to you. Te escondió en una esquina. So, uh, what, what, you know, Tell me about that, about these actors that are that are in it this time around. There, there are many, many of the actors in the in the piece I've worked with in the past. Mm. Uh, for instance, uh, the owner of the factory, uh, the character he's of, amazing. of Santiago. Yes, the he's, he's wonderful. The, he's fantastic. He's been in like four of my plays. So he's an actor that I worked with in, in the past, an actor that understands my language and understands uh, my world and understands my staging as well. Because if you notice, it's very physical, too. Uh, and uh, and then there's Anya Guillen who plays the character of Conchita. She's in she's been in many of my plays before, and actually it, it was Anna in the Tropics, uh, the play that um, inspired her to take acting classes. Wow! Yeah, yeah. And, that, and but see, that's what you were talking about. Yeah. What some creation can inspire and in others to create and yeah. build from there. Yeah. That is fantastic. Yeah, and then we have Sandra Santiago, too, who was the, the actress in Miami Vice. And I remember, you know, seeing Miami Vice uh, uh, when I was much younger. And uh, she's someone that I worked with in the past when I lived in New York. And so I thought, let's bring her, you know, let's do a, a comeback uh, to, to Miami with, with her. You know, it, Miami Vice, can we just say, how, have you ever gone back and watched it? And how many great actors yeah. came through that show? It was ridiculous. I know. I know. I, I have. I have. Uh, in a couple of occasions, I've gone back to the piece, and 
and and just remember those times, those wild times in in, in Miami. <laughs> I was here then, you know. <laughs> well, you know, it's funny that taking us back to those times, put us back in where you were when you wrote Anna in the Tropics. I came to Miami. I was living in New York, and I came to Miami because I got a residency at New Theater in Coral Gables through a National of the Endowments uh, Art uh, Grant. Of the arts, right. Uh, yeah, so I came here, and part of the residency was for me to uh, do a couple workshops at the theater and to write a new play. And you were a Miami kid in, a, in the sense that you're born in Cuba, but you grew up I grew here. up here, yeah, yeah in so, Little Havana. Yeah. So that must have been an exciting time for you as well. To be yeah, because here. I left and uh, and I was gone for some time. Then I came back to Miami, so it was a way of you know embracing a little bit of my history. And uh, and my father had told me about the the uh, the tradition of lectores of lectors in the cigar factories in Cuba, and it always fascinated me. The fact that there was someone reading uh, novels and also from newspapers. Uh, to to the workers and it, it you know it just the whole concept was really had stayed with me and when because it's this idea that uh, the workers are doing this what's well, very a, tedi a tedious job they're hand rolling cigars and then they have this lector this this narrator who reads from books and, and play it reminds you a little bit of a uh, news of the world that book and movie where well I mean if you think about it the lector uh, is what later became a a a host, a radio host, right? Because we had lectores <laughs> before we had the radio. It was actually the radio. Uh, first of all, then there was in, in, the industrialization of, of those cigar factories. And with the machines, a lot of the lectors weren't being heard. And then they brought microphones so they can hear the lectors over the sound of the machines. And then that didn't work as well. And then there was the invention of radio. And then the radio, of course, after that, the tradition came to an end in the United States. Wow, so radio killed the lector star. Radio killed? <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, yeah. Oh, that's funny. So that time in your life, you're reconnecting with so much of your, your Cubanness. Yes, like. absolutely. And I wanted, you know, listen, I, I just wanted to document a little bit of our history, especially in Florida. And the fact that there was a, this influx of uh, exiles that moved here from, from, from Cuba in the late 1800s. Right. And there was a gentleman by the name Ibor, uh, Vicente Martinez Ibor, who moved from, from Cuba to Key West and started a, a cigar factory there. The problem with Key West at the time is that you can only get to it by boat. Right. We didn't have the seven the overseas seven miles. Right? <laughs> yes. yes. So 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 he started his company there. He was doing very well, but you know he wanted to expand. And then there was an opportunity for him to um, to bring his companies to to Tam to Tampa, Florida. Right. And and so he started his business there because there was a, a railway at that time in Tampa, Florida. So it was better to export uh, the, the the tobacco and. Uh, uh, so so that so he started a company there, and then years passed. It was a little city created, and it was named after him. And uh, by 1929, there were like 200 uh, cigar factories in Tampa. And 1929 is when it's when my, the play happens. The yes, play is set. yeah, it's set. So, so you know, I know you've brought um, a part of the script of the play. I'd love for you to read a little bit of it. Uh, can you put us in? A, so just a, the general context of the play is they have these lectores. There's a new lector that comes into town, and he is uh, he, the first book he decides to read is 
Anna Karenina. And I want to talk to you about later why you why you picked that book for him to read. And it sets into motion these uh, underlying uh, issues that are that are going on within the characters, the people working in the factory. So, Nilo Cruz, please please take us to where we're going next here. Yeah. So this is um, this is a moment in the script in which uh, you can see how the book is making the workers think, and how through the book they start to meditate on their own lives, mm. but also they start to to find a way of speaking to each other. So this is a scene between a two workers in the in the cigar factory, a husband and wife, Conchita and Palomo, and they've been having problems with their marriage, and through the book, they're able to talk to each other. No? Mm-hmm. Uh, so this is uh, this is the so this is what the scene is about, and and here we have the character of Conchita, uh, who approaches uh, her husband Palomo, and I'll read the f- the, the name of the character uh, before I read the the dialogue, uh, because that way we can follow the, you're the trajectory. Listen, you're the pro man. <laughs> okay, this is your show right now. All right, so this is Conchita. And how do you like the novel that Juan Julian is reading to us, Palomo? I like it very much. Conchita, doesn't it make you feel uncomfortable? Palomo, why would it make me feel uncomfortable? Conchita, the part about the lover? Palomo, (laughs) it seems like in every novel there's always a love affair. Conchita, and do you ever think about everything that's happening between Ana Karenina and her husband? Palomo, mm, yeah, I, I do, but I... Uh, Conchita, so what goes through your mind when you listen to the story? Palomo, I think of the money all those people have. Conchita, <laughs> you would say something like that. Palomo, why? Because I like money? Conchita, I'm talking about literature and you talk about money. Palomo, and what do you want me to say? Conchita, I want you to talk about the story, the characters. Palomo. Wouldn't you like to have all the money they have so you don't have to spend the whole day rolling cigars and working after hours so we can save some money and have our own business? Conchita, I don't mind rolling cigars. Palomo, and what's so good about rolling cigars? Conchita, my mind wanders to other places. Palomo, what places? Conchita, places and things money can buy. Palomo, oh, money, 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 money can buy everything. Conchita, (laughs) not the places I go to in my mind. Palomo, and what kind of places are you talking about? Conchita, places made of dreams. Palomo, (laughs) you're a strange creature, Conchita. I don't know why I married you, Conchita. You married me because the day you met me, I gave you a cigar I had rolled specially for you. And when you smoked it, you told me I had slipped into your mouth like a pearl diver. Palomo, I told you that. Conchita, yes, you did. After blowing a blue ring of smoke out of your mouth and the words lingered in the air like a zeppelin, and I thought to myself, I could fall in love with that mouth. Palomo, as far as I can remember, I married you because I couldn't untie your father's hands from around my neck. Conchita, ah, the truth comes out. That explains everything. You never really cared for me. Palomo, are you trying to start a fight? Conchita, no, I asked you a simple question about a love story, and you're being foolish. Palomo, never mind. Then Conchita says, you don't care about anything, do you? Juan Julian could be reading a book by Jose Martí or Shakespeare, and everything goes in one ear and out the other. Palomo, 
I pay attention to what he reads. I just don't take everything to heart the way you do. Conchita, well, you should. You remember the part of the book in which Anna Karina's husband is suspicious of her having an affair with Vronsky? Remember when he paces the room like a lost animal? Palomo, I know what you're trying to get at, Conchita. I just want to have a civilized conversation, the same way the characters speak to each other in the novel. I've learned many things from this book, Palomo, such as jealousy. For Anna's husband, jealousy is based on almost animalistic, and he's right. He would never want Anna to think that he's capable of such vile and shameful emotions. Palomo, but you can't help being jealous. It's part of your nature. And then she says, oh, I could see the husband so clear in the novel. How the thoughts would take shape in his mind as they have in my own mind. I mean, I mean, not the same. No, no, no. Not the same because he's an educated man surrounded by culture and wealth. And I'm just a cigar roller in a factory. He is well-bred and sophisticated. I barely get by in life. But with this book, I'm seeing everything through new eyes. What is happening in the novel has been happening to us. No, 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 no. Don't look at me that way. You might not want to admit it, but Anna and her husband remind me of us. So here you can see how the book is really affecting them. That was Nilo Cruz, the playwright, reading from his Pulitzer Prize winning play, Anna in the Tropics. And really in this scene, they are learning to speak they're learning a vocabulary that they can speak together. Absolutely. And all through the novel. Yeah, and all through the novel. And if you really look at, at the whole piece, it's it happens to all the characters. In many ways, they can talk about themselves through the novel, which is, which is what I think that art does. I mean, when we, when we go see a movie or when we go see a play, when we leave, we you know we, we talk about what, what we just saw, and sometimes we... we um, we see ourselves in a character. I think we all have a a movie or book or a play that we say, ah, oh, it was that play that changed my life. It was that book that changed my life or that movie. And this is what Anne in the Tropics is all about. It's about the power of literature, the power of the spoken word, and how uh, literature can offer possibilities uh, for those who are, are, are reading a novel. That was Pulitzer Prize winning playwright Nilo Cruz. He joined us to talk about the 20th anniversary production of his play, Anna in the Tropics. You can listen to our full conversation with Nilo on our website at wlrn.org. Or check out our podcast. Just search for WLRN Sundial on your podcast app. Still to come, Chef Neven Patel made his mark on South Florida's restaurant scene with a new kind of Indian cuisine, using ingredients from his own two-acre farm in Homestead. He was recently nominated for a James Beard Award for Outstanding Restaurateur. We're back with a special episode of Sundial. I'm Carlos Frias. Farm to table wasn't enough for Chef Neven Patel. He had to have his own farm. He had to grow his own vegetables for the dishes he serves at his Kendall restaurant, Ghee Indian Kitchen. He had to be the one to pick the food from the vines in his own backyard, where his twin daughters run through rows of okra bushes laughing in the rain. He took that same idea and applied it to two more restaurants he opened in Coral Gables. It's a lot of work, being a farmer and a restaurant owner and a chef. You can't argue with the results. Neven was named a finalist for a National James Beard Award last month 
as an outstanding restaurant owner. And it all started with a kind of restaurant he said he'd never open, an Indian restaurant. See, Neven was born in Valdosta, Georgia. He was raised in Jacksonville. He loves making pasta more than anything else. He even has a little bit of a southern twang. It slips out. I've heard it. Somehow, he became the foremost authority on Indian cuisine in Miami. He became the guy who packed spices in his bags from his trips to India. Somehow, raised among southern food, he became an expert in southern Indian cuisine. I wanted to figure out how he did that. He joined us on Sundial earlier this month to talk about it. So here's the, the true question for any Southern boy. Yeah. Do you follow college football? <laughs> yes, I do, but I do like the NFL better. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you can't grow up in the South and not be a football fan. Of course. I mean, I grew up in Jacksonville with the uh, Florida-Georgia uh, game. The Florida-Georgia game? Oh, right. Yeah, it happens uh, every year in Jacksonville. So, And you were aware of that growing up? Oh, yeah. We used to go every year. You know, It's the largest cocktail party yeah, in the, the country, right? <laughs> that's right, the largest outdoor cocktail party. Yeah. It's interesting to, to hear you talk about your Indian, I mean, your, your southern roots, and you have this Indian restaurant. And I'm curious about what it was like growing up with Indian roots in a place that's very southern rooted in tradition. And and what, what were your connections to your Indian heritage, Indian food growing up? Or were you very much an all-American southern boy? No, I mean, uh, my heritage is very close to me because when I grew up in Jackson, it was a very big extended family. Oh, you're, so I grew oh, up you had a lot with of family like there. my uncles, aunts, and my, my family started off with like a small little motel in Valdosta. And, like, my dad was the first one here in the country in the early 70s. Oh, wow. And then, you know, he got married to my mom. And then my mom's side of the family actually moved to Valdosta, kind of just started going to school and stuff. And basically that one little motel kind of supported this whole extended family to start off with. And then through the years, you know, like four or five years after I was born, they decided to move to Jacksonville and start businesses. And through that, through the years, it just became like a big family there, that all kind of worked well together. I want to say that there's a show called Little America on Netflix right now, and there's one episode where there's like this Indian family that owns this little ho- little motel. Uh-huh. It kind of like, that one is like in Texas. Okay. So like, is that, is that yeah, kind of what brought your family? Yeah, exactly. Just started off small and then, um, it was just amazing to grow up in a really tight family where like on weekends, everyone would get together, basically sleep over for the weekend. And that's where I found my love for cooking and food and just like family in general. That's amazing. And, and yet there's something Latin about you because you use your hands a lot. I hear you banging the table. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, so that's interesting to be to have that tie. What did you think that did for you, for your, your interests in in food and community to have like community around you well i think you know in the hospitality field i think what brings me so much joy on a daily basis is to bring experiences to a guest that maybe wasn't expecting it right right and so that's where kind of the ethos and like my lifestyle has become now i don't think of our restaurants or what i do every day as like work anymore 
It's just a part of my life. Oh, right? I would love to get to that point in my life. Yeah. <laughs> I know. And so it's just great. Like, you know, today I woke up and I was like, I'm just going to pick some veggies for Carlos and bring it. And then I can't wait to see what you do at home with it, honestly. I know. You, you, know? you brought this bag and we're going to go through this bag. We're going to do yeah. an unboxing here on, on the radio in a minute. It's going to be great radio, I promise. Yeah. Uh, so tell me about what your table looked like growing up. Because you talk about mm-hmm. growing up and it seems like you had a very urban lifestyle and now you live a very suburban. Uh, tell yeah. me about your your what you what your house your yeah. house will look like and what your food look like. Yeah, I mean, you know, as any like immigrant family coming in the states, it it wasn't easy in the beginning. I still remember growing up basically underneath the counter of a convenience store. You know, me and my brother, they basically set up a mattress underneath the counter. Is that what your parents did? Yeah. So they had store. convenience stores to start off with, and you know they would open up from like seven in the morning till 11 at night right wow and you know they couldn't leave us at home by them by ourselves so basically until they closed up we would be sleeping underneath the counter and going home with them and um and did was your was it ever expected of you that you would go into that kind of family business like a as you know as we as the family grew and kind of the businesses grew we kind of transitioned from convenience stores to more hotel development mm-hmm. and hotels and, and now you have two restaurants in a hotel we can I know about right that. and you know I remember just being on job sites at like 3 a.m. as like a teenager in the summer on concrete pours and stuff like that so you know it was kind of a unwritten thing that was going to be a part of that and then of course I threw a curveball and said I just want to do it all on my own and do culinary how, how did that um, go? Like, how did you realize that you were interested in food? Like, what was it? What were your memories of it that really drew you to the kitchen? Well, I just love cooking with my family. And then, you know, in the early 2000s, when I decided to go this route, you know, it was the huge Food Network movement. Right. Of like all these chefs and like the Food Network had just come out. And um, well, what was cooking with your family like? What did that look like? Yeah. What kind of foods were you making? Because in the deep south, so it was like, did you right, guys? Right. No, you it was still very entrenched in like Gujarati food, and like um, what's good? Prim- Talk to us about yeah. Gujarati food. What is so it? Gujarati food is like a, a region in India that's very agriculturally driven. Uh, most of the diet's actually vegetarian. So I grew up vegetarian pretty much the whole my whole life. Right. Um, and growing up here in the south, you can there's still a lot of vegetables and things that you can grow locally right that kind of mimics the exact vegetables that would grow in that kind of um climate right like what kind of stuff were you were you so like black eyed peas there it's called jari in gujarati and it grows so well in the south so like black eyed peas and eggplant is like one of like the staple dishes of Gujarati cuisine. Mm, interesting. So I like like for me my go-to meal is like black eyed peas and eggplant. Right. Oh wow. With rice and like yogurt, right? right. Such a amazing combination. Well, it seems like uh like you you kind of have tapped into like the things happening in the tropics because one of your restaurants here mm-hmm. uh is Mame and yes. and it's like these are foods that are like we associate with Caribbean, but it's really a tropical food. In other words, if you were to draw a line across across the globe, mm-hmm. you like you would have the Caribbean and India kind of sharing similar um, yeah. agricultural possibilities. You know, hundred percent. So, like a dish that we do at Mame that I think ties in Miami and the Latin culture in India is like the ghee roasted plantains. 
So we took a very Latin thing like plantains and added like layers of Indian flavor with like tamarind, cilantro, yogurt, and like crispy chickpeas. And when you eat it all together, it just becomes like a match made in heaven. I feel like that though, the plantain, what would the plantain be in, in India? Would that be a sweet potato of some kind or? Yeah, so it's actually like a, either, uh, it's called rataru, it's like a sweet potato, a purple sweet potato. Or they do it with like samosas and things like that also. Oh, cool. Yeah, yeah I feel like there's there's so much connection. To that. So I, I, so you clearly had this interest in cooking. Who were the cooks in your house? Who did you watch? Oh, it's my mom and grandma. Oh, mom yeah. and grandma. Yeah, yeah, for sure. You know, like the men in Indian households don't ever cook. <laughs> so did you get yelled at for being in the kitchen? Or? You know, of course, like it was uh, not yelled at. It was just like I was always hungry. So I was always in the in the kitchen, right? <laughs> <laughs> like what what kind of food would you be sneaking off the you know um like there's just so much amazing like snacky food in indian cultures right oh yes like i don't know if i've ever like usually every christmas i make this trail mix that's just like crispy curry leaves and like puffed rice and it just becomes this like very addictive trail mix and just like things like that, there's just so many snacks of India that it's just very addicting. Everything is easy to kind of yeah. to munch at. And and we're so if the men really were if the the kitchen was the women's domain, which is yeah. like not an uncommon thing that you you've heard. Yeah. How did how did they react with you both on yeah. sides? Well, you haven't you have. Oh, I mean, it was kitchen. it was it was really hard to convince because I was so tight with my whole family, like extended family, so. Like any major decision in your life has to be approved by like twenty people, right? <laughs> Can't just be your mom and dad. So when I decided to like go to culinary school, you know, I kind of honed in on something close, which was like art institute in Fort Lauderdale. Okay. And actually, one of my aunts lived in Fort Lauderdale, so his plan was like kind of go live with her while I went to school and things like that. And so I had a whole plan formulated, and they're like, "You're crazy." So wow. kind of to convince them. I basically made the living room of our house into a dining room one night. What? And basically did like a 12 course meal. That is amazing. For them. So put it, put me in age. How old are you more or less? About 18? Uh, about 18. Okay. Yeah. And I made my cousin. She was the server. And I printed out these menus. Oh, man. And full restaurant. Full restaurant, right? To make them understand how serious I was about this. Because, you know... Um, they just thought it was like a phase, right? And so we did this whole meal, and they're like, okay, he's serious about this. Give me, give me what was on the table. I know you still remember some of the oh, things yeah. you made. I mean, it was, some, it was some crazy funny stuff. Like I did a, I did like an Asian-style soup, but I served it in like a cabbage cup, and it was <laughs> very, you know. And like I made this like peppermint mocha cake, and um, it was just, it was it was just like trying to mimic things that were on Food Network, right, at that time. And what were their reactions? Were you watching them as oh, they yeah. were doing? Yeah. And, you know, and that was the moment. Like, it just happened, and I was very fortunate that I, have a, I had a supportive family that kind of embraced it and, you know, uh, got me to school, basically, you know? That was Chef Neven Patel. He was recently named the finalist for a National James Beard Award for the Outstanding Restaurant Owner category. You can listen to our full conversation with Neven on our website at wlrn.org. 
or search for WLRN Sundial on your podcast app. And that's Sundial for Monday, February 20th. Leslie Ovalle Atkinson is our lead producer. Elisa Baena is our producer and social media editor. Sergio Bustos is WLRN's VP of News. Katie Munoz is our director of original live programming. Peter J. Mertz is WLRN's vice president of radio and Sundial's engineer. Our theme music is by the Miami Afro-Cuban funk band Palo at gopalo.com. You can download a podcast of this program. Just search for WLRN Sundial on your podcast app. Coming up tomorrow on the program, Aquino West was just named one of America's emerging chefs by the James Beard Foundation. He'll be in conversation with one of last year's finalists for this national award, who is also in Miami, Chef Cleo Hethington. I'm Carlos Frias. Thanks for listening.